Welcome to Spirit of Cinema, Episode 7, The Boy's Burial from the Killing Fields, scored by Mike Oldfield. The Killing Fields was a great critical and box office success, with seven Oscar, 12 BAFTA and six Golden Globe nominations, earning wins for actors John Malkovich and Hang Noor, as well as first-time director Roland Joffe, first-time writer Bruce Robinson, cinematographer Chris Menges, editor Jim Clark, and producer David Putnam. And the music. The Killing Fields is Mike Oldfield's only commissioned film score. Tubular Bells was picked up as a soundtrack for The Omen a decade earlier, but it wasn't specifically written for that film. I've been a fan of Tubular Bells since wearing out the vinyl, playing it over and over again, taking in every nuance of this breakthrough album, while inspired by the story of Mike Oldfield, the young man who played every instrument, and introduced each of the featured instruments at the end of the record. Here's the Killing Fields producer, David Putnam, on how he chose and managed to convince Mike to take on the score. Well, I think the time that uh, came to do The Killing Fields, I was pretty confident. I'd had a really interesting run. The music, obviously, from Midnight Express won an Oscar. The music from Chariots won an Oscar. The local hero score was gorgeous, as was Cal. So I, I was on a run. And I, I had convinced myself that I could kind of hear a movie from the script. And what I realised was that The Killing Fields was quite unusual in that it was about, a lot of it was about things, um, APCs, tanks, uh, helicopters... There was a lot of hardware involved. So it occurred to me it might be interesting if not, instead of having a, a, a score as such, you actually had sounds that, the, that the, the, the musical score, the underlying score of the movie, really was related to the sounds that were going on all around it. It was kind of warlike, if you like, for want of a better expression. And um, I went and had lunch with Richard Branson, a restaurant he used to have at the top of Derry and Tom's in Kensington. And we talked about it. And I wanted to get to Mike. So Richard arranged for me to, to meet Mike. And I sold him on the idea. I think he was quite nervous at first. He hadn't done a score, never done a movie score. But I'd been through that with Mark Knopfler and done the kind of sell, the persuasion. And I think, you know, based on the fact that certainly Van Gallis had done so well and George M. Roder had done so well, he, he, you know, he signed on. And I've got to say, Roland Joffe really liked the idea, so I didn't have to. I didn't have a problem selling the idea into Roland. I actually think, in hindsight, he did a really, really great job. Uh, I'm not sure I was fully appreciative at the time. Well, I was appreciative of the fact that he took on the oratorio, you know, the, the leaving of the city, which I had expected us to have to bring someone else in. But he said, "No, no let me have a go at it," and he did. So I am I'm very admiring of that. I think that actually the music over the ending when Pran looks down and sees the, um, the, the, the Red Cross uh, hospital uh, and it segues through to, to Sam running into the, the offices of the New York Times. I think that was extremely well realised. At the time, I wasn't surprised it didn't get nominated for an Oscar. In hindsight, I think it deserved it. I think it was a very brave, very interesting score that beautifully complemented the movie. I think that probably my original idea is best exemplified during the evacuation sequence from the helicopters. That's where he really delivered what I'd originally gone to him for because of Hergis Ridge and because of Tubular Bells. I'd gone to him for noises and sounds and that he really delivered big time during that sequence. Here's Mike Oldfield. I wanted to try it. It was um, in 
people had told me that my music was very filmic. Um, but, but it can't be just that, otherwise I would have done a hundred film scores, you know. It was something special. I think uh, partly because it was a true story, uh, because the person involved, the real character was very heavily involved in the making of the film, and it was done with, with tremendous um, you know, attention to detail. One of my most treasured memories was being allowed to watch Bill Rowe, the legendary EMI Studios dubbing mixer, carefully balance the music, dialogue and sound effects to create the soundtrack. These were artists of the post-production world. David's post-production rule was this. Well, you know, the, you know, the great rule, of, rule I had with uh, Jim Clark, who I liked working with Jim and Roland and others, but particularly with Jim, is the rule was that there was no such thing as a bad idea, that you try it. This collaborative safe space gave rise to one of the remarkable moments in the movie where the main character, Sidney Schamberg, feeling deep shame for leaving his interpreter and by now great friend, Dith Pran, the man who had literally saved his life from certain death, in the hands of the enemy, the Khmer Rouge. Bruce Robinson's script had called for Sidney to turn down the recording he was listening to of Ness and Dormer to hear the infamous Nixon speeches from the television. By fluke or accident, the music was turned up, enveloping the scene and expressing the pent-up emotion in a way that great music can say so much more than words. The fortuitous mistake stayed in the picture. Let's hear more from Mike Oldfield. It's first and only time I've ever done film music, and for me it was it was a big challenge. It was very different to anything I'd done. I'd never, for example, worked with people who were masters of their craft in you know in anything other than music. I gave it my heart and soul. It wasn't like sit down do a job. I was completely, totally immersed in it, and. Um, as a result of that, I have pleasure of, you know, watching it and thinking all the, all the heartache that went into it. And here's director Roland Joffe. There is a scene in the movie where I think Mike's music is displayed in its best kind of quality, in a sense, which is where the city is about to be evacuated and Pran is pleading for the release of the journalists. And suddenly there's a reversal for the journalists, because hitherto being a Western journalist gave them access to everything and an immense sense of invulnerability. Suddenly this is reversed. And the truth is revealed to them, which is they are now incredibly vulnerable precisely because they are Western journalists. And Pran now becomes the man upon whom their lives rest. And Pran is trying to negotiate with the Khmer Rouge for their release. The Khmer Rouge are not interested in releasing anybody, though the Khmer Rouge themselves aren't quite sure what's going on. So this is a scene really about living in the moment of chaos when time stretches. So it's a film about things that are fear is stretching, time is stretching, and everything is, is deforming, if you like. I was having trouble with that scene, to be honest. I couldn't quite think of what to do. So what I did is I built and, um, half a dozen little sequences on my, on my uh, computer. And it still wasn't working, so I think, oh, what the hell, I'll de just detune a lot of them, you know, 500%, you know, and see what happens. And one sound went to the wrong place, another one went to the wrong place. And it sounded com completely chaotic. An atmosphere of chaos and sort of terror, and all these banging gongs, or slightly electronic sound like they were malfunctioning, that there was something from a nightmare. And here's David. What we were looking for was a, was a piece of scoring that had the smell of fear, and that's what I think we got. Literally, Francais, 
That extraordinary sustained note. It's very, very piercing and very troubling. And while that note's there, you know that their life's hanging by a thread. And you know that if that note alters one way, they're dead. But it doesn't, it alters the other way. It dies away. And something, a different tone or quality comes into the film when you know they're safe. The Killing Fields features as one of the top British films of all time for its remarkable epic storytelling. The crew returned to England physically drained after giving everything they had to bring this story to the cinema. The Killing Fields has both the epic sweep of superb cinematography and big-budget screen vistas, coupled with an intimate portrayal of simple human heroism. The, the Killing Fields is a, is, is a result of a, of a series of quite happy accidents in some senses, and also the confidence that had come from, for me anyway, producing uh, the Midnight Express, the success of Bugsy Malone, uh, the satisfaction of making Local Hero. Local Hero was like getting, was like going off on holiday with some, someone bringing a camera, but actually I realised that we could make a different type of movie. Uh, so I was really up for trying to produce a, a big um, international film. I was, it, it was, the timing was perfect. Um, and I had enough freedom because of Chariots to be able to choose the director I wanted, and I took a long time over it. It took a, about a year and a half talking to everybody. Um, and it was in combination of Roland's work, the work he'd done in television, but more than that, in his attitude to the story and what he came back to me with when I kind of pitched him the thought uh, that made me feel very secure about him, too. So, yes, I think it, it just occurred at the right moment in a whole series of people's careers, right moment in Chris Menger's career, right moment in Mike Roberts' career. Mike Roberts' contribution to both uh, The Killing Fields and The Mission, subsequently, is enormous as camera operator. Uh, I don't think for one moment uh, Roland could have pulled the movie off without the, the uh, contribution that Mike made. And the other key component, of course, was uh, Jim Clark, the editor. Uh, Roland never worked with an editor of that calibre. And the fact that they came to trust each other very early on, and the fact that Roland was prepared to listen to Jim, and that Jim also had been wanting to push the envelope of filmmaking. Uh, it was just a very, very good group of people at, at, at the very, I think at the very best moment in their careers. To reimagine the boys' burial music with the classic film orchestra, I kept faithful to Mike's original, using choir, corps anglais, a tenor oboe, and getting the deep rasp of the bass trombones. Of all the tracks on the Spirit of Cinema album, the piano plays less of a solo role and more of an orchestral role. I also made the conscious decision to change the last harmony from a bright major to a subdominant major, as expected, and instead inserted the Italian subdominant minor for extra spice without changing the melody. Sometimes a piece of music for the concert hall, rather than playing second fiddle in the cinema, can take a little bit more piquant, a little more spice, which might be too much emotion when married to picture, but it's a rousing finish and a perfect concert finale. If you look around at any news sites, you can see how relevant The Killing Fields is today, as it was in the year of its release, 1984. The film has aged well, and I urge you to watch it again in the light of the present day. 
Here's David on the audience reactions while premiering the film around the world. Well, I think it affects a lot of people. I mean, people were very emotional. One of the most interesting things, I've talked about it before, but was traveling with that movie with Roland. We went all over the place, um, particularly in Asia. Uh, and the, the fact that when the boy is killed by the, by the grenade, which incidentally was an idea of a, of a, a journalist when we were actually making the film, because uh, originally it wasn't going to be that. Um, when that happens, no matter where I went with the movie, people cried at exactly the same moment. And what I realized was that it was the universality of it, that everyone copped to exactly what was happening at the same time. And you get this wonderful shimmer in the cinema when people's tears hit their cheekbones you know, and, and, and reflect back onto the screen. And you get this quite amazing, unique little thing happens. But you could almost say conduct it in. It would happen at exactly the same moment, no matter where you were in the world. Thank you to all our guests. Their recollections are a priceless insight into the art of filmmaking. You can find more behind-the-scenes stories, pictures and video at spiritofcinema.co.uk. Join us for Spirit of Cinema Episode 8, where we'll be diving into the superb score by Mark Knopfler to Local Hero. Stay safe, stay well and see you next time.